This morning we are in Psalm 13. Uh, so if you got your Bibles, now's the time to open her up and we'll get started. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Well, good morning. How you guys all doing? Awesome. You can talk. It's a movie theater, I know. You're not used to it, right? Uh, you guys all have a good fourth? Enjoying Madison in all its glory? I mean, seriously, it was a beautiful weekend, beautiful week. So, I got a question for you. What do you do when God feels absent from your life? How do you respond when God seems silent? There was a, uh, a community forming a little over three millennia ago. And um, this was this, this people that were set apart for the creator God, to be a people for this God. And in the midst of that community, there was this, these songs that were being developed, that were being written. And these songs were what we're calling this summer, our series, this original playlist. And these songs were designed so that this people, no matter what they faced in this world, in the complexities of life, they might learn to trust, they might learn to pray, and they might even learn to praise this God who had called them out. And uh, we set out a few weeks back in this series, and from the beginning, uh, just real clear, like the, the book of Psalms, which is where we're going for this summer, this original playlist, uh, it's not like some philosophical theory of how to trust God. You know, it's not like we're in a classroom with like fluorescent lights and we're just talking about abstract things and here's what it looks like to trust God. The Psalms are nitty, gritty, earthy songs that go in and out of the various ebbs and flows of the experiences that we all experience in life. And this particular psalm that we have this morning is a lament. I said this morning, it's kind of like the indie rock of psalms. It's, it's this angst. It's different than indie rock, it is, you'll see. But it begins with some angst. And actually, almost a third of the psalms are laments. And these are tracks filled with non-reticent emotions of agony, despair, grief in the face of troubling circumstances. 
And Psalm 13, if, if I could sum it up, you know, the, the, the real big question is, what do you do with God when God seems silent? How do you respond when God feels absent? What do you do when you feel abandoned by God? Have you felt that way before? Perhaps you enter this theater and that's how you feel this morning, perhaps. A little bit like this. Well, this song, this track, was written so that this community that was forming would actually learn to trust this God even when they felt like they were abandoned by him. And this song is broken down into three sections. We're going to look through each one of them this morning. Uh, The first one is protest. The second one is petition. And the last one is praise. And so let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll, we'll get right in. Father, we just ask this morning that the meditations of our mind, that the very crevices of our heart might be spoken to in the midst of this song and that we might learn what to do with you when we feel like you're not even there. So give us hearts that are teachable, responsive, and just honestly, we just ask your Holy Spirit to do what only you can do, and that is to reveal who you are in the person and work of Jesus. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So in uh, verse 1 and 2, this is how it begins. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Y- you notice at the very beginning, it begins with this track asking the question, God, are you going to forget me forever? God, are you going to hide your face from me? It's, it's a description of God being distant, of feeling like God is absent and silent. And when you go actually back to this community that was forming, we begin to see actually this happened quite often. So for example, you go back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, it begins with this people in Egypt enslaved. Not for like 10 years, not for 20, but for 430 years. And they're making bricks out of straw. They have no rights. They're being oppressed. And there they sit. And they've got to be thinking as this is going on, well, do you remember a long time ago when this God, this creator God, came to our forefather Abram and made this promise that, hey, I will make of you a great nation and all the nations will be blessed through you. And they must have just felt the palpable tension of, okay, this is what you promised to do, and these are our circumstances. Where are you, God? 
when you look through the pages of Scripture, and not to mention even our own experiences perhaps in this room, there's a lot of data actually to show that a sense of God's apparent absence is not uncommon. In fact, the opening of the psalm suggests that the feeling of abandonment by God is more common than we think. Uh, Eugene Peterson, an author, pastor, writes this about, speaking about God's apparent absence, he writes, it's not exceptional, preventable, nor necessarily a judgment on the way we are living our lives. You know, the next two lines just show continued anguish. They It says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? Honestly, the psalmist is just depressed. And not only that, but there's an enemy that's exalted over this person. So there's there's outward opposition. This is not a great day, right? This is a bad experience. But let me tell you how, how helpful this psalm is, how helpful this song is. It really gives us a robust picture of what it looks like to walk with God in the midst of a broken world. Um, What it does, it begins to dismantle the simple notion that if you feel like God is absent in your circumstances, it doesn't mean that you're on kind of the JV spiritual team, okay? And that if you were on the varsity, then you would be doing just fine. And God would, you'd be sensing God's presence all the time. These first two lines dismantle the mentality that if I just had more faith, then I wouldn't be so down. These first two lines dismantle the simple notion that if I just trust God, then my present circumstances will change and life will get easier. And one of the most amazing things about these first two lines is what it does. It says, hey, guess what? God's not looking for you to come to him with a stoic, cleaned up, smile on your face that says, I trust you no matter what. It's raw. It's gritty. This language of trust that we see in this first section if anything, suggests that God is asking us to come with honesty and candor to him in the midst of whatever we're facing. These first two lines, what's I think perhaps most astonishing is what it tells us we should do, what it gives us license to do. And and I want to pause for a moment here because um, if you're new to the scriptures, one of the things that um, the scriptures say about themselves, uh, for example, 2 Timothy 3 says that they're breathed out by God. In, in other words, they're his revelation. This is, as you encounter his word, you are encountering him. And when you begin to look at it through that lens, it's saying this, that God is actually giving us license to come to him and protest. We live in Madison. People love to protest, right? <laughs> who, who wouldn't like a good protest? I mean, come on. It's all we like to do around here. We like to go to an authority, and we like to figure out what's not right, and we like to say, I don't like it. 
give us some space on the Capitol Square, right? And let's just show up with some signs. Let's protest. But that's exactly what this psalm is inviting us to do. You know, the phrase, how long? And those first two lines is mentioned four times. And you've, if you've ever been a kid in a car on a 30-minute car ride or a 30-hour car ride, it doesn't matter. You know the term how long what that means, right? It's 95, okay, let's go 99.5% of the time. It's not a kid saying, Dad, I'm just curious, how long till we get there? You know, it's not that at all, is it? It's, you know, like all of a sudden mom and dad become two-syllable words, right? And it's, how long till we get there? There is protest against this, the length of this car ride. And the psalm is saying, how long will you, will I feel like I'm absent from you? Will, will you feel like you're absent from me? How long will I just be depressed? How, how long till those who oppose me are not somehow doing better over me or prevailing over me. Eugene Peterson, again, points out these two lines give us a language so that we can, and this is so, this is so good, have strength to face all that we don't like and don't understand in this world. Isn't that incredible? Think about that for a mom- moment. So we can have strength to face all that we don't like and don't understand. Now, this is not like a shaking your fist at God thing. But this is coming with honesty and candor before God. Protesting God's apparent absence. You see, track 13 begins. And it begins to equip us and what it means to trust God when God feels very distant. And it just tells us simply this. Just come to him in honesty. Come to him with candor. Come to him. And if you can, protest. The very circumstances you don't understand. The very circumstances you don't like. It's an invitation to do that. That's how it begins. It's not how it ends, but that's how it begins. The second section is one of petition. In verses 3 and 4, it says this, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He begins by petitioning. It's to make a request to one who is in authority. And he begins by saying, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. It's a a request that even though God is absent, he's saying, hey, would you please just pay attention to my circumstances? That he might have regard for us. This, This phrase, to light up, his eyes, it's, it's a metaphor that's associated with life and happiness. Would you, would you bring happiness and life into my life once again? And then at the end, he just simply lays out the consequences. God, if you don't act, 
I'm not going to be here much longer. Those who oppose me will win. And not only that, but they'll be very glad that my circumstances have not changed. And I don't know about you, but um, there's something, there's an undergirding belief in this section in which he petitions. Unless this one thing is true, there's no way you should petition. It's just simply a profound truth that your life, that my life, actually matters to God. That the very circumstances we find ourselves, that he actually cares. So, track 13, it, it begins by saying, hey, come with candor, come with honesty, come with protest before God in the midst of your circumstances. But not only that, you come before God and you ask him to rescue you. Ask him to rescue you. Now, the last section, praise. This is where things, this is where it stops being indie rock, okay? <laughs> right here. No more indie rock, okay? Uh, this lament ends on a note of joyous praise. Um, verses 5 and 6 say this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, what's most stunning about this section is that uh, every commentary I looked at, my own study, is this, is that this joyous praise does not erupt from circumstances changing, okay? It doesn't like, like things have not changed. There are other psalms you can go to where the psalmist cries out, God clearly delivers in a historical way, and then they praise, which is completely legitimate, right? But in this particular section, there is no evidence that anything has changed in their circumstances. And he begins to have this joyous praise. Uh, John Calvin put it this way, it's as if um, deliverance is off in the distance, but it's being brought immediately before his eyes. In other words, the psalmist says, it's, it's way down here, deliverance is way down there, but it's almost as if it's right before his eyes. He's praising even before it gets there. And the question is, how, like, how does that happen? You know, like no, most of us are like, hey, I can protest. That sounds great. You know, I can petition. That sounds natural. I need some help. That's natural. But, but praise? How can praise spring forth? <laughs> how can you get to the point of, of wanting to sing and saying, I've, that God's dealt bountifully with me when the circumstances have not changed. How can you begin to praise when God still feels distant? When he still feels silent? How can you begin to praise when my circumstances, whatever they might be, have not changed? How can you begin to praise when those that are opposed to you are still opposed to you and they're still above you? And, and the answer is in verse 5. The psalmist is digging, depending, relying, 
and standing upon one thing. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's it. Um, the, the joyous praise in the midst of life's circumstances that are unsettling only find fertile soil in knowing this God who has a steadfast love. To put it another way, to, to, to the degree you understand and understand and know this God who has a steadfast love will be the degree to which you can learn to praise even when life circumstances are not as you want them to be. So what is it? How does God's steadfast love operate? How can it even produce joyous praise when circumstances are not changing? So the, the term steadfast love could actually be translated loyal love. It's, it's not a flaky, superficial love that's here one day, gone the next. It's not an emotional, sappy love that kind of ebbs and flows with emotion. It's not a selfish love that kind of uses the object of love in a way to put them in a better position. But this is what it is. It, this is what it is. It's a self-giving love that spends itself to rescue weak, broken, helpless sinful people and brings them in to a loving relationship with the Creator God. Let me say it again. S the steadfast love is a self-giving love that spends itself to rescue weak, broken, helpless sinners and calls them in to be a people set apart for Him. This community, as it was forming, you can, you can go back and look in the pages of the book of Exodus. You'll see God's steadfast love and him revealing himself in his steadfast love. You could go to, for example, a really good one would be the book of Ruth. It's an amazing book on this notion of steadfast love. But let me put it this way. Those two examples and many others, are it's kind of like looking at the moon. You know, if it's nighttime, you look up at the moon and you're just amazed the moon. When it's a clear sky, you look up, you can see the craters, all this different stuff, right? It's amazing, right? But you know that the moon is not generating that glow. It's merely reflecting that glow. If you really want to see where all that's coming from, you've got to look at the sun. That's where, that's why you can see that. And it's the same way here. When, when you read through the pages of Scripture, when you look forward, if you want to know what God's steadfast love ultimately looks like, the pinnacle, you have to look at the Son. You have to look at His Son, Jesus. And this is, we're going to look at one section here. And it's, it's from the Apostle John, and he wrote this letter, and he's, talking about this love, this love of God, this, you could say, steadfast love. And this is what he writes. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And let me just point out a couple different things here. That, that word manifest, it says the love of God was made manifest. It's, it's as if God is saying, hey, the, the, the curtain is being pulled back. If you want to look at the spot where God has perfectly revealed his love, you look to his son, Jesus. Um, when, when you look through the pages of the Gospels, what, what do you see? You see Jesus loving those who are on the margins, those who are the outcasts, those who are the, the social outcasts, the moral outcasts, the religious outcasts of the day, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the common men, the fishermen. And what does he do? He meets them right where they are. And we see this steadfast love, and not only in his teaching and in, his, in, 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 in the miracles that he performs, but all four Gospels spend the majority of their time focusing on the last week of Jesus in which he is crucified. And John puts the meaning of these events around this language. He says, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's common vernacular today, right? Propitiation, you use that all the time, right? That's, um, let me explain it. Propitiation is this. It's to exhaust the righteous anger of God for our sins. You, you know when you see something that is wrong. You know when you see injustice in the world. And, and you know that feeling you get when you just, you're, you're angry. Sometimes um, we, we don't quite slice it the right way, but, w- but we all kind of know at least some level when something's done that's wrong and, and we see it, we, we get angry. We want justice. And, and, and the scriptures are clear, simply this, is that all of us have sinned and that before God, because he's holy and we're not, that we need mercy. We don't need, we, we, we don't want justice, but we, we desperately need mercy. And it says this, that God has fully exhausted the anger that we deserve for our sin on his son. And, and that because of this, through faith in Jesus, we can be accepted, forgiven, declared right before this God who's holy. Um, let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're curious, you're skeptical, um, this is what we would commence you each week at various ways. We, we, we would simply say this. Um, we, would, we would commend you challenge you to consider, is this true? Like, is this love real? Did it really happen? Not, does it make you feel good? Not, is it, can it help me in my anxiety? But, but simply this, like, is it true? It's only relevant if it's true. So if you're curious or skeptical this morning, if, if you're going to be able to pray like this, if you're going to be able to, to deal with God's absence and actually begin to have a praise in the midst of circumstances that aren't changing, it has to start right here in the fertile soil of God's steadfast love, which is fully revealed in Jesus. 
Now, I want to do some things at the end here because this is really important. Um, one of the things we talk about here at Redeemer City, we talk about being gospel-centered. And, and what that means is that we're trying to figure out, like one uh, notable pastor said this way, that, that, that the gospel is not merely the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. We say that a bunch around here. It's what we orbit around all the time. And what I'm trying to do here, the rest of the time here, is trying to flesh out what does it look like for the implications of the gospel when God feels distant? When circumstances aren't okay, how does the gospel actually speak to that? Because that's ultimately what this, this text is pointing to. And I'll say it a couple different ways. Firstly, if, if in Jesus we see that God has not spared anything, any expense, but has sent his son to those who are not deserving. And if we say, yes, I trust that, I believe he's done that, then it means no matter how absent he may feel from our lives, he has not left us. He has not merely kind of dropped us off and said, We'll see you later. If God has done that in Jesus, and here's the other part of, part of it too. Think about this. He's done that to the people who aren't deserving of it. And that means I'm not trusting in my performance, right? It's not like he had a really bad week this week with the kids, or I had a really bad week with my wife, or I had a really bad attitude at work, and, you know, God's absent, and I don't feel it. And, but see, you're not trusting in your performance. That's not where the psalmist is going. The psalmist is saying, I'm trusting in your steadfast love. I'm trusting actually in Jesus' performance. And that changes things. That means no matter whatever you feel, there is history. There's space, time, and history. It's done. It's finished. You're his. And that matters. Isn't that good news? And not only that, This love has done something. You know, in verse 4, it talks about these foes. Verse 2, it says we have enemies. When we read through the biblical narrative, one of the things you find out is that ultimately, there are three foes that we have. One is Satan. One is our own sin. And one is death itself. And in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as you begin to read in the New, Te in the New Testament, what does Jesus do? He overcomes all three. He overcomes all three. And, and that means that in the midst of not knowing how God's rescue is going to look in your circumstances, you know that ultimately nothing can touch 
what he's already accomplished. Your ultimate foes have already been defeated. There's nothing like that. Like, it, it, it doesn't matter whatever you face, whether it be <laughs> the loss of a job, whether it be the loss of a kid, whether it be an illness, whether it be a broken relationship. Th- th- this isn't meant to somehow shrink these things as not important or not hard at all. It's just to say this, that in Jesus there is reason to have hope in the midst of despair. Hear me on that. There is reason to have hope, real hope. Not, not fake hope, not this feel, I feel better now hope, but a raw hope in the midst of despair. We've seen protests, we've seen petition, and we've seen praise. And I want to just wrap it up by sharing one example of how this has looked in someone's life. Uh, there's this girl named Angie, and she was uh, really languishing in a season of her life. She'd been married for 30 years, and uh, not a great marriage. And after 30 years, finally, papers were filed and the divorce happened. And she was languishing in the apparent absence of God. And this is what she writes. Where was this God I had been counting on? Was he real? If he was, did he care? She writes, when I could form words, I cried out, I could never watch someone I love suffer like this and not stop it. You say you love me, but I can't square that with what I see happening. This feels cruel. I've got to know you are who you say you are, or I cannot go on. Do you feel the honesty and the candor? The next morning, she writes that wise words came from a trusted friend and said this, Angie, you need to force feed yourself the scriptures. Through them, the Holy Spirit can speak to places in your heart where human words just can't reach. The next morning, I read these words, she writes. You, O God, are strong, and you, O Lord, are loving. And she writes, they came like smelling salts to my fainting heart, silencing torturous fear and doubt. My heart was infused with a deep assurance that he loved me and was very near. That night, I knelt before my bed. My heart broke, unable to contain. Listen to this. Her circumstances had not changed. Unable to contain my gratitude for God's persistent love through a mess that should have driven him away. Instead, he came closer than ever. The psalm ultimately just says, if you can be able to pray like this, you can understand this God who has a steadfast love. I love how um, we have the, this, this Jesus Storybook Bible at our house. It's a great uh, resource for parents and um, for our kids. And it talks about this steadfast love and it 
says it this way, this never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. So let me close with three questions for you this morning. What circumstances in your life do you need to come and just have a frank conversation with God about? Where do you need to be honest? Secondly, how do you need God to rescue you? And then lastly, how might God's steadfast love in Jesus lead you to praise him even while you wait? Let's go to him now. Let's pray. God, you know the valleys that folks in this room are in. You, you know the, the circumstances in our lives that we frankly don't like. You know, even now, there are doubts and fears wondering if this God could really love me. And Father, just pray that you would speak, that you would draw near. God, would you help us to be a community, to be a family that speaks with candor and honesty in how we pray to you? Because you invite it. Would you help us in the midst of your apparent absence to even then still ask you to come and help? And would you help us even in the midst of waiting as our eyes are fixed on what you've done in the person and work of your son Jesus that even now we'd be able to praise We ask this in your name. Amen.